Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. Continuous Plays Harry Potter series retrospective. We will be reviewing each of the Harry Potter films this fall up until the release of the first part of the series finale, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. These reviews will be spoiler filled, so if you haven't seen the movies, watch them before listening to our podcast. Continuous Play Podcast is not affiliated with Heyday Films, 1492 Pictures, Duncan Henderson Productions, or Warner Brothers Pictures. And any discussion of these films, the characters, music, or parties involved is done so for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Now, Anna and Jay, raise your wands and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Film Strips Harry Potter Retrospective Series. I'm Jay. And I'm Anna. And we're glad you've joined us for this fifth edition of our Harry Potter Retrospective, where we talk about Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, the 2007 film directed by David Yates this time around and starring the same bunch of people that has been starring since the beginning. No need to go through any of that again. Now, Anna, interesting note about this film, all right? In terms of the Harry Potter franchise, this one currently ranks fourth in domestic box office, but it comes in dead last in the opening weekends of Harry Potter. Now, take that into account. It made $77 million in its opening weekend. I mean, it blew away everything it was up against. The only thing it was really up against was Transformers, which was in its second week, and it had already hit the fade. But I wonder if people were slow to come to this one after the Goblet of Fire. It could be, and also... I don't think this book is exceptionally strong. I think this is one kind of like the prisoner of Azkaban where the movie might actually be a little bit better than the book. Very interesting that you'd say that. We'll have to get into that as we talk a little bit about this tonight. Cause it, I mean, again, it is a, it's the 12th highest grossing film of all time. I mean, we talk about these Harry Potter films. I feel like I'm nitpicking 200 and $300 million films. I mean, worldwide, this thing's made nearly a billion dollars, but uh, in context of its own self, I do, I do think, fans may have been a little slower to come around to it uh, based on, you know, any number of factors, you know, but uh, we, I guess we'll have to get into that as we go through it. Anna, do you have a plot summary for us? I do. And um, we start with Harry and his friends are now in their fifth year at Hogwarts. And this one is going to be exceptionally tough. As we learned from the last movie, the Triwizard Tournament was a, a trap set by Lord Voldemort to try to kill, basically try to kill Harry. And when Harry returns back to Hogwarts, he proclaims that the Dark Lord has returned. Well, the Wizarding World hasn't taken that too kindly. And actually, here in the Wizarding World, Harry has become the villain. In this process, though, at the beginning, Harry does learn about kind of a secret society his parents were a member of. And so were people like the Weasleys and um, serious 
and Mad-Eye and Lupin and stuff that called the Order of the Phoenix. And it's led by Dumbledore. And it was a, a secret society. They were against Lord Voldemort, where everybody was kind of for him because they were scared. Throw all this into the mix, along with a creepy new defense against the Dark Arts teacher, Professor Dolores Umbridge, who is hell-bent on making Harry's life more miserable than Professor Snape ever dreamed. And also, in all of this, Harry goes on a first date with, (laughs) yes, they are dating now, with his crush of quite a while, Miss Cho Chang. And it does not end up the way Harry particularly is basically a typical first date. You know, you build it up and you build it up and it just ends not well. So Harry and his friends are in for a tumultuous year, but there is a bright side. Harry and the students organized to form Dumbledore's Army, which is kind of a newer version of the Order of the Phoenix, where Harry actually teaches them defense against the dark arts, unlike Professor Umbridge. In the end, there is a showdown at the Ministry of Magic where Harry and Voldemort learn that eventually one cannot exist along with the other. So basically one is going to have to die for the other to survive. And Sirius is sacrificed in the battle by falling behind this curtain. And the only saving grace of all of this is that finally the wizarding world believes Harry and that, and that Lord Voldemort is returning and trying to gain power and Harry is taken seriously. But at this point, that is of little consequence to Harry. Anna, I, I have a lot of questions about what you just read because I'm glad you summed it up that way because I feel like it's all a setup so that the rest of the world will now believe Voldemort is alive. That's really the only reason this exists. It is, and the book's the same the book's the same way. The book has more detail than this, of course, because we've gone on how long the books are, and you can't really put, when they try to put that in the movie, we get like the Chamber of Secrets or the Goblet of Fire, and it just goes on and on. We've said that numerous times, but the book is like that. The book is like, you're finally going to figure stuff out, and you don't. I remember when the book came out, she's finally going to answer these questions. These are going to be answered. And the only thing they do is the all the basic plot of this movie can be summed up really in one sentence. Is that Harry and Lord Voldemort learn that one cannot exist along with the other. They learn that someone has to one of them will have to die for the other to survive. That is basically all you learn in the book and in the movie. But then along the way, we get all this secret society stuff, and we get this uh, defense against the dark arts teacher, which she's, I think she's some sort of veiled reference to like extreme conservative teachings in schools or something. I just feel like there, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's sort of thinly veiled in this, but in the end, very little happens besides Sirius Black sacrificing himself, which raise your hand if you didn't see that coming 10 miles away. And, you know, I mean, really, there, there really was not a lot that wasn't, I want to say predictable. I felt like I was a step alongside this film the entire way. And I don't know if that's always a bad thing, but maybe it's because I just, if the formula to these is so simple, I don't know. I mean, I didn't even read the books, Anna, and this is the film where I just sort of stopped watching Harry Potter. And it wasn't because necessarily I didn't like this. I just felt like I had seen all of this and I didn't know, I knew it was leading somewhere, but I felt like it was going to take forever to get there. Yeah, there's not, 
unlike the Goblet of Fire and even the Prisoner of Azkaban, there was more action in those movies. There is not a lot of, there's not a lot of action in this. And I'm sorry, to me, the book is just like the movie. It's a tease. There's some things, and I've alluded to this in other podcasts, that they left out that I thought, but there's one thing in there, the occupants, the thing where they take a strand of a memory and like put it in a bowl and you can go in. In the book that is in there and you explain why Dumbledore has been so distant to Harry is because of the scar. Voldemort can get into his mind and see what Harry's thinking and doing and Harry can do it vice versa with Voldemort because they're connected by that scar Yeah, and he can get in and Dumbledore is trying to be elusive and kind of avoid Harry and Harry takes it as what's wrong with him does he not believe me when really he's doing it kind of as a strategy that well they did have a little bit of that in the movie and I that did give an interesting subplot they had to have something going on to keep us engaged in this story somewhere mm-hmm. in it because again a lot not a lot happens it's a lot of talking and Let's talk a little bit about the writing of this. Now, this is the first time they get a different writer besides Steve Close. They bring in Michael Goldenberg to adapt this one. He had written Bed of Roses, if you ever saw that, the Christian Leitner, Mary Stuart Masterson romantic drama thing from the 90s. He wrote that and directed it and had uh, co-written Contact, the um, Jodie Foster. Foster vehicle and i mean he's been a part of a lot of this stuff but he was brought in to do this because of a writer's strike and um more recently goldenberg's one of the screenwriters for green lantern if you've seen that you know you can judge it for what it is but he's a he's an established writer i mean he's written a lot of stuff so it's not like they got some hack off the street to do it but it is a different adaptation like i feel a difference in this and up until this watching i was never aware that it was a different screenwriter and what do you think of the adaptation because i mean it's clear he cut a lot out of a book that is nearly 800 pages long yeah and but maybe they needed that at the time after the Goblet, because up into this, this is really where the Harry Potter franchise kind of, I don't want to say hits its groove, but they keep the same director. The, this is the last time we changed directors. Right. And maybe they needed that to shake it up a little bit, kind of hit a stride. But you know what I mean? Maybe it was time to shake that aspect up a little bit. Maybe the writing got too formula. You know, no, I, I don't think that was the case at all, though, because the, the thing is, the only reason they replaced the writers because of a writer strike. They had no intention of doing that. So bringing in another director, I mean, they've done that ever since the second film. So there's nothing new in that necessarily. Now they don't ever replace Yates again, and we can you know talk about that maybe as we go through the the next couple of films, whether that was a good call or not. But I don't know that they necessarily were trying to change the formula up. I don't know that they perfected the formula yet. You know they cut too much out of Azkaban for the hardcore fans, right? And right. then they left so much in for the casual fans like me for Goblet of Fire that a, a lot of people reacted to that differently. I don't know that they knew what they wanted, considering that this book is clearly not near the end i mean this they released this thing knowing that it's got a long way to go well the thing about this book that is just like prisoner of azkaban is there's not a lot of action in it unlike goblet of fire 
it's a lot of talking. It's a lot of researching. Like how we've always said, Harry's the jock. Ron's kind of the goof off and Hermione's the brain. Right. This is a Hermione movie, if you want, want to say. It's I, one I where, they find, where they find stuff out where if you could say Goblet of Fire, take with it what you will, whether it was good or bad. There was a lot of action. It was a Harry movie. It was, it was all action. This and Azkaban are more like a Hermione movie where it's very the the book was more insightful than action-packed and there's a lot of research and there's a lot of learning and there's a lot of stuff but there's no action well there's a lot of puzzles this movie is like a puzzle that's mm -hmm. that's what i i like it's like i'm a you know i like video games and stuff and i would call this a puzzle game and that fits the whole motif of secret societies and you know there's a whole educational statement all that stuff in there i mean i feel like this movie is supposed to be a puzzle in a lot of ways. And the ultimate piece is that we learn that, well, either Harry or Voldemort have to die, like you said. Yes. And then the other thing is there's a lot of stuff they left out of the movie. Like in the book, Umbridge just went on a firing spree. When she kicked Dumbledore out, she went on a firing spree. And basically, she didn't fire him. She butted heads with every professor. Let's talk about her. Cause we got to talk about the new defense against the dark arts teacher because they go in a really different direction this time with it by bringing in Dolores Umbridge who's I mean she is like I, I don't know how you read her I'll tell you how I read her she is supposed to be like conservative 1950s June Cleaver values brought to a wizarding school but really behind the scenes and much like the 50s, she's a very harsh, harsh woman. I didn't read her quite like that. I read her actually, I think of her as an elitist. I kind of think of her as a racist, to be honest. It's like How so? Old, old school race, racist people. You find them all over. They're in a bad mood. They're old. They hate everybody. So that's what, I, that's what I'm saying. She represents like that old guard that didn't trust anybody but her own kind. You know what I mean? Yes, and what I was going to say is that their mindset, they're old, they're old school, that's how they think, that's what they think is good. And then people younger and more educated look at that as, as bad, that that's mean, you can't do that to other people, they're people too, whereas people of that generation are kind of like, they think they're doing good but the rest of the world might perceive them as bad i think she is in lord voltmort's camp and thinks that what he's doing is good and getting the mud you know getting the mud bloods out and the muggles and stuff so i think she's all for that she's just too old and set in her ways to open her mind and think of anything other than that you see what i'm saying well as we learn i mean she's a plant from the ministry of magic right who's essentially just trying to shut hogwarts down for yeah. reasons that escape me did they explain it in the movie because i never caught it no not no not not really. I, I I thought they left a lot unexplained. Basically, the ministry was trying to keep Dumbledore intact. That's why they sent her. 
trying to keep him in they were trying to keep dumbledore contained oh okay it's a common theme throughout the movies and the books that dumbledore is the only one smart enough and brave enough to fight voldemort to go up against him to stand up to him where everyone the whole wizarding world spent just cowered in fear at lord voldemort he is the only one that the wizarding world thinks could stand up to him. So I think they were trying to keep him in check because they didn't want him going, you know, it's like, we don't want the, the leader of the CIA or FBI to run off and go, Oh my God, the world's coming to an end. We don't want the government doesn't want that. I don't think the ministry wanted something like that either. See, I didn't get that at all. I got that the ministry didn't buy any of this anyway. They were just looking for an excuse to ultimately get rid of Harry Potter and Dumbledore is a loose cannon if there ever was one right. and so they send this woman in there to really undermine his entire authority as the beginnings of trying to run him out of the school again I think they're thinking that he's getting old and he's losing his mind that he is very powerful and he is very smart and he he is brave enough to stand up to Voldemort but I also think they think He's kind of losing his mind and losing his marbles and he's getting sloppy. And so they were wanting to keep him in check and not have him running around telling everybody that the Dark Lord is returning and having everybody panic. What is the harm in the Ministry of Magic acknowledging that? Is it that Harry Potter is all the prophecy about him and all that stuff that he is indeed you know the skywalker what you know whatever i mean is that their fear is that all this stuff they've heard is finally going to come true or do they just need more proof than they've currently got to buy it i don't understand their the ministry of magic's motivations at all and i certainly don't understand why they would put somebody like umbridge in there for any other reasons except to undermine dumbledore like we've talked about well i think it's because voldemort had Ill, has infiltrated the ministry and they just don't know it yet to me that is the most logical explanation is that Voldemort has infiltrated the ministry and put his people in there kind of covert kind of you know kind of on the dl or something and i don't think the ministry has figured it out yet i think umbridge is one of them and these people have convinced the powers that be uh, like the hires up in the ministry that no, this isn't happening. Voldemort's never coming back. Don't worry about it. Dumbledore's a crackpot and he's just an old, a creepy old man or, or something. And that to me is the most logical explanation as to why, because up until this point, Harry has been the savior. Harry, he is the boy who lived every, you know, we saw in the first movie when he asked Hagrid, why does everybody know my name? Even beyond that, the last movie, even he was the boy who not only lived, but brought back the body of his friend who Mm -hmm. died in competition. I mean, he's proven himself enough times now that I, I'm just, I think that is just starting to wear thin. And I will, I will further admit that is wearing thin on me because I don't have the history with it. I didn't read the books. I don't know what's coming. I'm looking at this as just someone who's watching the movies for what they are. Uh And I'm seeing this and it's, you know, it's, it's like Shakespeare once said, right? It's sound and fury signifying nothing. It it seems like a lot of nothing going on for the sake of just trying to tell a compelling story. Now, the question is how compelling is it? And I'll say now, 
I was never as bored in this as I was in Goblet of Fire. Now, there's some of this that it's it's incredibly superfluous, but I think Yates and particularly Goldenberg and the way it's structured did a very good job of keeping it moving and keeping it fun. Yes. Goblet of Fire is the only one I've watched where I'm like, okay, is this over yet? I don't ever remember watching The Claw while I was watching The Order of the Phoenix. And I think... I think they did the right, just like they did the right thing in in Prisoner of Azkaban, I think they did the right thing and cut out the right amount to kind of keep it moving. If they put fire right in it, I might have made Umbridge a bigger pain in the butt than she was, than she was in the movie. But other than that, I think they kept the tone right and kept the movie moving and which is a very, which is a great feat considering there's not a lot of action in this movie. Yeah, it's all about getting between the puzzles until we get to that final uh-huh. fight. Now let's talk about Bellatrix Lestrange, played by uh-huh. Helena Bonham Carter. She's one of Voldemort's most loyal Death Eaters. She's Malfoy's aunt. Like she's got this very eerie. A presence about her that is that is different. You can tell something is up. In other words, like it's just I, I don't want to explain any other than that. I just think she has a presence that is it's very unnerving. Yes, and she's kind of also to me, and you'll see this. Like she has more prominent roles in the next three movies. She is kind of crazy, like a, a fox. You know, you can't, you can't, she's, she kind of, to me, she just kind of seems a little off, you know, she's been in Azkaban, she's, um, you know, she just, to me, seems a a little off to me, and I think that's perfect, I think she does a fabulous job, she's perfect for this role, I mean, she's just wonderful, and I'm surprised she hasn't been in these sooner. Well, you know, I, I am too, and I, mean, I think she's great in it, even though she's only in it for a bit. Uh, we know we're going to see more of her as we go through. Mm-hmm. Now, we've talked a lot about the bad guys in this. we, we got to talk about our two factions, if you will, the Order of the Phoenix and then Dumbledore's Army. I mean, what did you make of those as plot points and just sort of how it all worked out in the film? There's kind of an argument in the beginning. I think it's between Lupin and Sirius, or the Weasleys and Sirius, and Sirius is wanting to tell Harry everything. He's wanting to treat Harry as a contemporary, and especially like the Weasleys and Mrs. Weasley, who have children, are yeah. like, no, you've got to protect them, you got to shield them. And, you know, Sirius is the cool godfather at this, you know, he's <laughs> the godfather and he's cool and stuff and he you know and the weasleys are more nurturing i guess i could say and you know and and they don't want to upset harry and they want to protect him like parents do and i i thought that was an interesting dynamic in in it where he's wanting to kind of bring harry into the fold but in the end Harry kind of goes and forms his own order but Dumbledore's army he kind of goes and does it 
on his own. Well, the parallels there, right, are that the Order of the Phoenix rose up because there was a great disturbance in magic that the powers that be weren't willing to handle, so they had to take matters in their own hands. Uh-huh. Well, in Harry's generation, they, you know, the, the Ministry of Magic once again has intervened and is keeping these people from being as defended as they need to be because they're not learning, so Harry and his crew have to go teach themselves defense against the Dark Arts, and it's all about taking up arms for yourself and not waiting for the system to do it for you, isn't it? Right. It's about taking, you know, taking matters into your own hands. And, you know, just because, and not taking just because I said so for an answer or just because this is the way it is, you know, invoking change on yourself, making your own rules or standing up for what you think is right, not what everybody says is right. I mean, what did you think about Sirius dying in this and sacrificing himself essentially <sighs> for the greater good? Well, number one, and this is just a vent from this, the book, but before this was published, they were like, oh, somebody major is going to die. Somebody, She's got somebody major die, dying. And yes, Sirius is the major, but the way they talked, it was like Dumbledore or Harry or Ron or Hermione or good grief, even the Weasley, somebody who had been there from day one. And then Sirius died. Okay. To me, he's only been, this is like only his third book and he's dying. Okay. That's not major, but okay, I get it. So that's kind of just as... Reading the book, that just kind of irritated me and ticked me off. Two, I feel sorry for Harry. I feel sorry and I just, I mean, the poor kid's been through hell. I mean, Baltimore's out there been trying to kill him for the last five years. He's constantly getting in these predicaments like the Triwizarding Tournament and and stuff. And he's the Chamber of Secrets. And he's con- his parents died when he was an infant, and he's lived with those horrible Dursleys forever. And it's just like, okay, could you not cut the kid a break? Do you have to make his life so miserable that everybody he loves and and any tie to the past he had has now been gone? So thanks. Thanks for just making this depressing. <laughs> well, isn't that the point, though, is that ultimately Harry, even though he's got all these friends and all these advantages, ultimately it's going to come down to what he can do on his own. And he's, he's there to pick it up from these other people as much as he can, but he can't rely on them. He ultimately has to rely on himself. Isn't that where this is all going? Yes, but I just feel sorry. You know, I'm being a total girl, and I just feel sorry for him. I just feel sorry. It's like nothing good ever happens to Harry, and I just I just feel really Oh, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Harry gets to go on his first date in this movie. He gets a kiss. Hey, homeboy ain't got it so but bad. She, tur- she turns out to be like crazy. Like he's been dreaming of this girl and, you know, and he's been, and to add insult to injury, she was dating Cedric and then he died kind of, it was kind of Harry's fault because of that. <laughs> this wasn't his fault. So, I mean, and then <laughs> so we finally asked her out. She turns out to be like totally nuts. So, well, like, but no, isn't that the, your, your first relationship? You build it up in your head. Is yeah, the- I mean, just like. <laughs> nothing i just feel so sorry he's like charlie brown like nothing good happens to poor old harry and now he's being chased by Voldemort. and i mean can't can't the kid just you know do a schoolwork and play some quidditch every <laughs> once in a while no i think the answer to that is emphatically no I mean, does he constantly have to be sneaking into the ministry and getting getting prophecies and hey i want to tell you right now i would much rather this be going on than to be watching uh, harry's creek 
You know, I don't need the Dawson's <laughs> of Harry Potter. I, that is not why I'm watching this. It was not what we... And where Hermione's trying to decide Harry or wrong. Oh, <laughs> yeah, let's not go there. I mean, really, that no, that that would be wrong. It, and I'll tell you, I, for a long time, waited for this series to actually go there. You know, again, as someone who only read one book and didn't really know much about where it was going, just sort of taking these films as they were, I kept waiting for it to become that. And and to its credit, it never does. And that's sort of nice in that the, it doesn't ever go there. It stays true to its magical roots, if you will, or whatever. They don't have time to go there. Those stupid kids of Dawson's Creek had time to sit there and talk about their feelings and sneak into each other's rooms and stuff. They don't have time. They're being chased by Baltimore. Yeah, Pacey's not trying to be killed by anybody. Yeah, that that's okay. You got time for that when you're not being hunted. You know, that, that tends yeah. to make that work. You know, I'm with you. You know, look, folks that listen to the Artist Slaying podcast, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective that Brian and I do, if you want that story, hey, there, there, it is right there. We got two and a half seasons of it. Go download it, listen to it. More to come very soon. I didn't want that in Harry Potter. And I don't want it in Harry Potter. And I'm very glad that they don't go there with it. I think it would have been the wrong move. And I'm just glad it doesn't go there. I like Harry's whole growth in this. I like the fact that he is starting to take so much more responsibility for things. He's no longer just letting it come to him. He's going out and working for it. I like that. I think it's a good move. And like you said, you know, they give Hermione, this is Hermione's story, if it's anything, because it's figuring stuff out, which is what she's best at. And that makes her much more compelling. And I, I felt like Ron really got the shaft in this story. There was really nothing for him to do except kind of sit there and look sort of pitiful and cute. Yeah. He kind of, and this is the first one, and I'm trying, like I've said, I said in our podcast of Ask Van, and I said in Goblet of Fire, and I'm trying to think back, and I can't remember in the book, but she's always switching it up. It's like Harry and Ron are mad at each other, and Harmony's caught in the middle, and then Ron, Ron and, you know, and... Ron and Hermione are mad, and yeah. Harry's caught in the middle. You know, she always does that to kind of do the dynamic, and I don't think this one this one was as much had that dynamic, so Ron was probably kind of put on the back burner a little bit. And, yeah, Ron just didn't have a whole lot to do. Bless his heart. It's not, but, but, but the Weasleys play a big role in everything. They do. You know, of everybody they brought back, I was glad they brought back Lupin for the short time he's in it. I, I liked him and mm -hmm. I thought he was a cool character. Is he a lot more in the book than what he is in this movie? I have a feeling he probably would be. Yeah, they have a picture of the Order of the Phoenix and it's everybody in it and they go over and it's like people like even Neville's parents were in it. Well, Anna, let's talk about the ending for a second. The duel between Voldemort and Dumbledore that ensues uh, ultimately and Dumbledore overpowers him, you know, but mm -hmm. Voldemort is trying to possess Harry and all that stuff. Uh, what did you think of that? I mean, it, it was kind of a dark moment. They let Harry Potter get a little evil for a second. Right, but this the movies have strategically been getting darker as he gets older. And so it makes, and there's also that line, I don't know if we've established, but there is that line where Harry is really just, he's just teetering on that line. And one wrong move, and he could flip over to the dark side, quote unquote, all the way back to the first movie with the sorting hat. If he had said, Slytherin, would we be here right now? Maybe not. 
Maybe so. Well, you know, though, that's an interesting point. It, is he supposed to be Anakin Skywalker where he, he could be either good or bad, and this is what would happen if he had gone dark side his whole life? Yeah, I, I think that's a common theme. Ah. Ha! You finally admit. I will recall back in the first podcast where I said this was a big Star Wars, owed a lot to Star Wars, and you said I was crazy. So five movies in, you now cannot deny that Star Wars has a lot to do with the mythology here. And I don't think that's bad. I want to say that. I think it's cool. I'm just saying I see it, and it's clear as day. Okay. If you say so. Yes. I guess my child has started, we took her on star tours at Disney. And it started the Star Wars craze. Oh, uh, yes. So now she's obsessed with Star Wars. I can see the. Well, it's there, but but it's still its own thing very much. And they do leave it. Again, they, they it's all about coming to terms with that prophecy like we've talked about. One of these people, Voldemort or Harry, is going to have to ultimately go away. They can't coexist because they're... They're two sides of the same coin, and ultimately they've got to reconcile and be. There, one of them's got to go, right? There can only be one to be, you know, the Highlander here, right? And that, that's what the movie took three hours. To <laughs> yeah, it took nearly three hours to get there. This is true, but the question is, was it worth it? And Anna, we're at the part of the podcast where we give recommendations and give our popcorn rating for the film. So, what is your popcorn rating for Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix? I give it a medium popcorn because it's better than the last one, obviously. And it's easier to watch. It flow it flows better. This one, absolutely you have to see to carry on. Too much stuff in this movie that comes into play later. So I give it a medium popcorn. It's not my favorite, like a must see, but it's good enough and it's important enough. I'm glad you said it was important to keep because I've been been meaning to ask you of everything we've seen so far because we're about to come down the home stretch. We're going to get film six and then it's film seven in two parts. So you know you got to see, I would assume you'd have to see six for sure and then seven is a no-brainer, obviously. So I'm wondering of the other ones what you needed because I said before, the thing about Azkaban or Prisoner of Azkaban that made it so good was you didn't really need any of the rest of it. You just needed basic meta knowledge of Harry Potter to like it. This one, I think you needed to have seen some of the other ones, but no, definitely. Yeah, but it is very good in its own right. I, and, and I judge it as very good because I think part of that is I'm reacting to the fact that I did not like the last one at all. So in light of that, I give it a medium popcorn too, because it's still a medium popcorn in terms of quality, but it's a big step up from part four. And you can tell what they're talking about here is going to be stuff that matters. Like there's just no way around it otherwise. So yeah, I'm with you, Anna. This is a medium popcorn all the way. Before you totally close, let me ask you a question. Cause you've said off record that the fourth movie kind of soured you and you weren't too excited about the fifth and the sixth movie at the time. And so how do you feel now after seeing this? How do you feel about the rest of the series? Are you still are you still kind of have that not excitement or do or are you a little bit more excited? I'm a little bit more excited this time around, mainly because I know I'm going to do it either way. So there's, there's no way I can get out of it at this point. Brian is not going to sub in for me here late in the podcast. So I know All I've right. got to finish it. But watching it again, I know now what about why the fourth movie really turned me off. Like I just got so bored with it. And I did watch this one. I didn't go see it in theaters. I I went and rented it, and I remember watching 
watching it going, yeah, that was pretty good. And I, I've never seen it again until watching it for this podcast. And I liked it a lot better the second time around. Like, I don't know that I can ever sit through the Goblet of Fire again unless I'm just in a mood and, and must have my completest ways and, you know, watch all of Harry Potter. But I would probably watch this one again. And I'm curious to see where they go because I've never seen the sixth one, Half-Blood Prince. And so I'm curious to be you know totally fresh on it and to know how they're going to set up everything for this major seventh film that's been broken into two parts. So yeah, I, I am a little more excited about it, but I also understand what you know got me out of it is, is still the same problems. Like I feel like this is a film series, and I don't mean this in any disrespect to people who read the books, but I feel like this is a film series that is really dedicated to that loyal audience who read the books. And casual fans like me have really one, maybe two films to hang on to. You can watch the first one because that's accessible for everybody, and you can watch the third one. But the other ones, and you've hit on it a lot by talking about a lot of the differences in things, Anna, you really need to know the books in order to, to fully get them because there's stuff they just leave out, but it's still important. They, they leave you hanging, and it would have been explained if you know the book. And so you either got to have friends that know the books that can fill in the gaps for you, or you got to go read them yourself. And I got to tell you, there's nothing about these last two movies that's made me want to pick them up and read them. Like I would, and you've said it as much too, Anna, that reading these would be a real chore. And I just don't know that I'm lining up for that. Yeah, they're really long and it's a lot of, a lot of puzzle pieces. Yeah, it almost feels like it'd be too much, you know, but, but we'll see. I mean, may change on that as we go. We'll see what happens as we go through, but we've got three films to go. And Anna, the next one is Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. That's part six we're going to get to in our next podcast. But until then, for Anna, I'm Jay. Thanks for tuning into our Harry Potter series, the film strip from Continuous Play. Thank you for joining us in this chapter of Continuous Play's Harry Potter series retrospective. We will be reviewing each of the Harry Potter films this fall up until the release of the first part of the series finale, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Check out our website, www.continuousplaypodcast.com, each week for a new release in the series, and email feedback to us at mailbag at continuousplaypodcast.com.